Christ Church, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we uh, once again ascend uh, the mountain peaks of uh, Romans, uh, which is the Mount Everest of the Bible. And here in Romans 8, we get some of the most beautiful panoramic views of God's grace and mercy in Christ. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we uh, look at Romans 8, verses 2 through 4 uh, this morning. I understand there are some uh, bets being placed as to how long we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and uh, I'm thinking it's going to be some time, just to let you know, uh, we'll be in this wonderful chapter. There's so much here, and even as I was trying to get through verses 2 through 4, I wasn't very successful this week. Uh, So we'll get through a good portion of verse 2 and maybe half of verse 3. Uh, And then we'll carry on with this section uh, next time we're together. But let's look at Romans 8. We'll start with verse 1 just for context and read through verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, even as your word is proclaimed now, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. On the last Sunday of October, uh, it is our tradition to uh, remember and to celebrate uh, the 16th century Protestant Reformation, the Spirit-led movement uh, that serves to uh, recover, uh, in large part, the gospel Uh, of grace, and also make a significant impact on Western civilization. Uh, The Protestant Reformation also brought exposure to the moral corruption and erroneous doctrine of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Indeed, after centuries of relative spiritual darkness, God raised up courageous spiritual leaders like the German reformer Martin Luther, the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, the French reformer John Calvin, and many, many others. Of course, there's John Knox, the Scottish reformer. And he raised up these men to boldly proclaim that salvation does not come through law-keeping. Salvation does not come through good works or religious experiences or church affiliation or family bloodlines or good intentions. I think these men were reading the book of Romans. We see over and over again what they were saying was not our hope for salvation. And interestingly, as we see what they were preaching against as the so-called hope of salvation, we have these same problems in our own day. Think of how many would respond to the question, how is it that you will go to heaven? Why should you be let into heaven? How many will focus on their law-keeping, on the rules that they are following, whatever rules they've come up with in their own hearts? How many would talk about their own good works? How many would talk about religious experiences? 
I've spoken to many over the years and I've asked them about their relationship with God and are they a Christian? And they begin to talk to me, not about the work of Christ, but about religious, religious experiences that they've been having. How about church affiliation? Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm a Baptist. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a Presbyterian. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm an Anglican. My family's been members of so-and-so Anglican church for generations. Of course I'm a Christian. Oh, so putting one's hope in a church membership. What about those who place trust in family bloodlines? Well, of course I'm a Christian. My grandmother and great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother were Christians. Of course I am a Christian. What about good intentions? Well, of course God is going to accept the efforts that I have made in my life. So all of these things are that which the Reformers preached against as, as, as any kind of hope for salvation. You see, none of these things meet God's righteous requirements or supply forgiveness or give spiritual life. None of these things meet God's righteous requirements, supply forgiveness, or give spiritual life. Life. We could spend 10,000 lifetimes doing good works, but our good works, which are all tainted with sin, would do nothing to quiet our guilty consciences or give us a right standing with holy God. Martin Luther once wrote the following, quote, If I lived and worked to all eternity... My conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether he required something more. End quote. The German reformer understood that the crushing demands of the law were impossible to follow. The law is there not to be a means of salvation, but to stir up sin in you and to expose that sin and your need for a Savior. Due to our sin nature, we fall immeasurably short of God's glory. And Luther finally realized through a study of Romans that what God requires, that is, punishment for sin and perfect righteousness to dwell in His presence, He provides through Jesus Christ. What God requires, He provides. It's like walking up to a gate and you didn't realize that you needed a ticket to get in. And they say, ticket please. And you say, I don't have a ticket. Well, you need a ticket to get in. And He says, well, how about this? I've got one for you. Here's a ticket. I guess it's like being at Publix. They say, do you have the whatever card? The, uh, uh, the card that's going to give you a little bit of uh, uh, off of your, 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 the cost of your groceries. You say, no, I don't have one of those. They take out the card and they, bloop. I don't know why I even get one. They just take it out and do it anyway. right? And you save a little money. Oh, great. So what was required to get entry, you were given. What was required to get a little bit off of your groceries, you were given. You see... This is what Luther realized about salvation. 
what God requires for salvation, He gives to sinners in and through His own Son. And this salvation is received by grace through faith. These are the hallmark characteristics of Protestant Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. This is the good news that changed the world. Not that God has done His part, and now we must do our part, but that Christ has done it all. Amen? Not that He's done His part, and now John has to do his part, and I never really know if I'm doing enough to merit eternal life, which is the place that Roman Catholics stay in, and also a lot of Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and everybody else that has this gospel misunderstood. They think God's done his part. Now I've got to do my part, and I'm never quite sure if I'm doing enough or if God's accepting me. And so I'm going to live in this place of insecurity and fear and worry as to whether or not I will finally reach glory. But you see, Luther discovered something different, that, that, that God has done it all. And he's done it all through Christ by satisfying justice on the cross and providing the perfect righteousness necessary for peace and communion with God. Beloved, we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ has done. We do not save ourselves. It is Christ alone who saves. Politicians don't save. You don't save yourself. Parental uh, uh, connections don't save. Position and power does not save. It is Christ who saves. Christ alone. He satisfies God's justice on the cross. He provides the perfect righteousness that we need for peace and communion with God. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our In our own moral strivings, our hope is in Jesus and in what he has done for sinners like us. This is the good news. This is news that's so freeing and compels us to sing. It's what the hymn writer sought to communicate when he wrote, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust The sweetest frame. You know what that means, the sweetest frame? I don't trust my own experience. I don't trust the sweetest frame. I don't trust my feelings. I don't trust my experiences. I trust in Christ. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. All those things I mentioned earlier, it's all sinking sand. This is the message of Romans, the good news that for those who are united to Christ by faith, there is no longer condemnation and death. Rather, there is welcome, full acceptance, and life, life abundantly here and life everlasting there in glory. Again, it's what Paul announces in chapter 8 and verse 1, which we looked at last time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as I was studying this week, I was thinking, this this really would have been a great way to end the letter. 
There is therefore now, in light of all that, that we've learned in chapters 1 through 7, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Romans 8, only one verse. The letter's done. But there's much more for us to learn, isn't there? There's a great implication of the doctrine set forth in the first seven chapters of Romans, and that's in verse 1. But the inspired apostle goes on, doesn't he? Why? Because there's more for the church to learn. There's more discipleship that needs to take place. There's more for the church to learn about the wonderful and mysterious gospel of God. So this morning we are in our 60th week in this epistle, and we are going to drill down into verses 2 through 4 where there is an absolute treasure of doctrine, layer upon layer of rich, Christ-centered gospel doctrine for us to consider. This morning there are merely two points. I'm going to focus in on the first point mostly. Uh, I'll touch upon the second point, and we will drill down even deeper into it uh, next time we are together, next Lord's Day, God willing. So if you're taking notes, I want us to consider two reasons why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are in union with Christ. Number one, God sets sinners free, and number two, God sent His own Son. Number one, God sets sinners free. And number two, God sent His own Son. First of all, God sets sinners free. Look with me again at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, I've spoken to a couple of you over the last uh, uh, week or so. Uh, and, and you have shared with me that uh, this is a strange kind of phrase, this law of the spirit of life. Paul has been contrasting uh, the law of Moses with the grace of God uh, over and over and over again. He's been showing us the difference between uh, the impossibility of salvation through the law of Moses and the gracious gift of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in Him. But what does this phrase mean? The law of the Spirit of life. What does he mean by the use of, of the word law with, with the Spirit? And who or what is the Spirit of life? Well, first of all, let's take up this last question I have asked. We must make clear that the Spirit of life is none other than the Holy Spirit. Indeed, this is another name for the third person of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life. He is the Spirit of life because He alone gives life. He creates life, physical life and spiritual life. There is no life apart from the Spirit, the life-giving presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You remember in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, creation is a Trinitarian work. The Father creates the world through the Son by the life-giving power of the Holy 
Spirit. And so the Bible says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and He was there to give life to all living creatures who were made. God the Father created the world through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And then in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, after all the other days of creation and the creation of animals and such, we learn that on the sixth day of creation, quote, Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and, what, breathed into his nostrils the, what, the breath of life, the breath of life, and man became a living creature, and man also was created with a living soul, a living soul made in the image of God. And so it is the Spirit who breathes into humanity the breath of physical life, but of course, His life-giving work doesn't stop there. Thank God that it doesn't stop there. The Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of life, gives, cultivates, and preserves spiritual life also. Romans chapter 8 is largely about this life-giving Spirit and His ministry within the life of the Christian and the church. And we see this life-giving work of the Spirit all over the Bible. And one of the clearest passages on this point comes from the prophet Ezekiel. If you have your Bible this morning, I encourage you to turn to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 and the famous Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel has this vision, and it says in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. It was decorated for Halloween. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. There were Lots of bones, and all of these bones were very dry bones. And he said to me, something that is counterintuitive and countercultural, he says, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Verse 4, then he said to me, Prophesy or preach over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, be, bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay down sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, he writes, I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied. There was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, or to the spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." You see, what's the point here? The point is that apart from the life-giving spirit, Israel stays dead and dry. They stay in their place of unbelief and rebellion. 
They stay under God's wrath, his just wrath. What we learn here is that apart from the life-giving spirit, Israel was a valley of dry bones and spiritually dead in sin, and the same is true of us. But through God's powerful word and spirit, the dry bones are raised up to be a living army of the Lord, ready to serve and follow their divine king. There is no life and no salvation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. This is also what Jesus, our Lord, was communicating to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Look there with me if you have your Bible, John 3. In John 3, Jesus meets this ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus, this Pharisee. He came to Jesus by night. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't say unless one is a church member. Unless one has a Christian grandfather unless one has good intentions, unless one tries his best, all of these things that people put their hope and trust in. He doesn't say that. He says, unless one is born again. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He just totally missed it. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of of the Spirit is Spirit. There is physical birth and there is spiritual birth. And Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so, dear ones, this law of the spirit of life is the principle or rule of life. It's the principle of life, the spirit of God. And it's the law or principle of the spirit of life that sets sinners free from the law of sin and death. Some want to say that this law of the spirit of life is the law of Moses and is trying to make all kinds of connections and do some exegetical gymnastics, in my opinion. This is the law of the spirit of life that has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is the law or principle of the spirit of life? It's that he makes us alive in Jesus Christ. But what is this law of sin and death which we are set free from? Well, it's not the law of Moses because the law of Moses in and of itself is not sinful, nor does it cause death. No, the law, Paul states in chapter 7, verse 12, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, so what is the law of sin and death Paul's mentioning here? Well, it's the principle or rule of sin that brings on death. The Spirit brings life. Sin brings death. In case you didn't hear, the Spirit brings life and sin brings death. That is what Paul is saying here. He's saying it 
over and over and over again in Romans in all different kinds of ways. Romans is like a diamond, and as you hold it up to the light, light's refracting out of all the different parts, and you're seeing the gospel so clearly displayed in all different kinds of ways. And, and this is what he's saying here. The Spirit brings life. Sin brings death. And there is a, a, a fruit of the Spirit or a life of the Spirit that Paul goes on to explain in the rest of Romans 8, and there is a life that is characterized by the flesh and living by the flesh. The two are at odds with each other. The Spirit brings life. Sin brings death. These are inescapable truths or laws. They cannot be avoided. If you jump off a 10-story building, the law of gravity will soon make itself known to you. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death are laws, principles, truths that we cannot escape from. Before we go on to the apostles' next point, let us not miss those three important words, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see those three precious words also mentioned in Romans 8, 1 in the previous verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ Jesus. I think 14 times he mentions some form of this in Ephesians chapter 1. Over and over again, Paul is referring to union with Christ. Union and communion with Christ. You know, so many embrace this idea of Christianity that it's, it's praying a sinner's prayer at one point in the past and kind of going on and living life sort of like unbelievers around you, maybe a little better. That's their view of the Christian life. But the Christian life doesn't start or finish with a sinner's prayer. It starts with union with Christ. Sinners are brought into union with Christ, and it's there in union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are set free from the law of sin and death. It is only in and through union with Christ that we are set free. Only in union with Christ by the Spirit are we set free from the dominion and power of sin. Only in Christ do we escape the coming wrath of God. Only in Christ are we set free from the second death and and not through our failed attempts to obey God's law. I love what the commentator Robert Mounts says, quote, Law was unable to overpower the malignant dynamism of sin. Legislation is ill-equipped to conquer a vital force, end quote. Dear ones, here is where we see the great contrast between the law and the gospel. The law is powerless to save. The law is powerless to save. Your good works, according to the law, are powerless to save. And by the way, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does, Luther said. We think that that God must need my good works and that this is how I'm going to be made right with Him and to, and to be brought into salvation. But no, it is in Christ alone. The law is powerless to say, but the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And that includes everyone. 
even you, even me, even Nigel. I received an email last week from Jeff Thomas, who is a 91-year-old Welsh preacher who is one of my favorite preachers in the whole world. And he's a Baptist, don't tell anybody. He is wonderful and going strong at 91. And last week at the conference in Newcastle, England, there were all kinds of people there. Uh, there were seminary professors, seminary presidents, people with Oxford and Cambridge PhDs. There were uh, 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 lay people there from all different walks of life. But there was a man named Nigel that I did not have the privilege to meet. I didn't know he was there. I would have loved to have met him, but I heard his story. Nigel is 52 years old. His mother had mental health problems, and she struggled to look after him. This is, this is Jeff Thomas's description of his conversation with him. So Nigel was raised in three different care homes. He never knew his dad. As far back as he can remember, Nigel was a thief, rarely attending school. When he was very young, he began to swallow alcohol and solvents. At 17, he finally entered prison for burglary. There he was drawn into the drug scene, and as soon as he was released, he went back to burglary in order to purchase more drugs. One of the times he appeared before a judge, he was called a menace to society. Nigel, on one occasion, smashed a fish tank in a hospital ward and took the broken glass to cut into his own stomach. His life was characterized by threats, frequent fights, and violence. He spent months in solitary confinement. On three occasions, the authorities attempted to treat him with electroconvulsive therapy. He experienced breakdowns, and he attempted suicide on a number of occasions. From 14 to 24, he appeared in Crown Court seven times. He was committed to 18 different prisons, two probation hostels, four bail hospitals, and two hospital secure units. He fought policemen and prison wardens. He sold drugs inside and outside of prison. He had nothing to live for and realized his life was going nowhere. But every cell had a Gideon Bible. And the Christians who visited the prison quoted to him John 3.16. And he never wearied of hearing it. He loved the idea of the life of eternity because his own experience of the life in this world was so barren and destructive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Some of the visiting Christians befriended him. One week, Nigel had a bad cold and was feeling lousy. He complained to these Christians, and they prayed that the cold would go away, and it did that day. That simple event was a milestone in his life. God heard men when they prayed. As he himself started to talk to God, he experienced a new peace and increasingly felt the presence of God with him. No drugs had ever done that for Nigel, and he began to experience a freedom a freedom that he had never known before, freedom from violence and hatred and drugs. 
The feeling of the nearness of God became increasingly focused on the Lord Jesus. He frequently spoke to him and desired to know his Lord better because he was daily receiving more help from him than anything his former lifestyle had ever given to him. Every time Christians visited him, he had questions ready about Christ and about the Christian life. He learned where the world came from, how our first parents defied God and fell and sin entered the world. He learned about repenting of his sin, asking God for forgiveness, and entrusting his whole life and future to this Jesus. Tenderly, Jesus changed Nigel as he gave his life to the Savior. Gradually, there was a healing in many areas of his life from hearing voices, from self-harming, from drug addictions, alcohol, smoking. Jesus delivered him from guilt and angry regret for the things he had done. He stopped biting his nails. He was comprehensively set free. Jesus changed him inwardly. He altered all Nigel's attitudes. He had no family, but now discovered a circle of new friends who surrounded him who were there when he needed them, and they prayed for him. Most of all, he became increasingly grateful that the Son of God had become the Lamb of God and had borne Nigel's guilt and shame in his dying for him on the cross. In the words of Nigel, quote, I know that I am loved and forgiven, and when I die, I know that I will be with God and live with him in heaven forever. The law of the spirit of life set Nigel free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. From the most arrogant know-it-all to the lowest sinner in our society. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. No matter what age, no matter what stage. The law of the spirit of life sets sinners free in Christ Jesus. It's what Paul declared back in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nigel received the free gift of life in Christ. He received forgiveness. He received mercy. He received an undeserved deliverance from what his sins truly deserved. The same was true of the apostle Paul. The same is true of so many in this room and of this preacher. Is this true of you? Perhaps you're hearing these things for the first time. Have you been set free? Or are you still living in accordance with the law of sin and death? Are you still under the false illusion that your imperfect obedience or religiosity or whatever will give you a right standing with God? God has given you what he requires of you. He's given you his son whose perfect righteousness robes you and whose blood cleanses you from all of the guilt of your sin. Well, we see the second point. That God sent his own son. Look with me again at verses three and four as we touch upon this this morning. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so after Paul contrasts these two law principles, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death, Paul explains how how the just and the holy God 
accomplished this great salvation? How can it be that sinners like us can be made right with a, a holy God who requires perfect personal and perpetual obedience to His law? Well, we see first of all that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What does this mean? Well, here Paul is returning to his overarching point that he makes in chapter 7. That due to, to our fallen sinful condition and the nature of our indwelling sin, sinful mankind is unable to do what the law actually demands. We may agree that the law is good, and we may, may make good attempts to obey it, but we end up not doing the things we want to do and doing the things that we don't want to do. We think things we don't want to think. We fail to do, think, and say the things that we should be doing and thinking and, and saying. Our weak and sinful flesh has made the law powerless to give us a right standing with God. Again, look there. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, that is our flesh, could not do. It's not that the, the law is somehow weak. It's that through us, it has become weak to save us. It can't save us. So what has God done? He has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He sent His own Son. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send an ordinary man. He sent His beloved Son, His own Son. An angel wouldn't do because Adam was a man and he fell into sin as a man. An ordinary man wouldn't do because an ordinary man would, would have inherited the sin of Adam. And so God sends His own Son born of a virgin, not an ordinary generation, born of a virgin. He gave His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't say in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became fully man without ceasing being fully God and without inheriting the sin of Adam. He became one of us. He became one of us, but also was, had a divine nature. One person, two natures, to accomplish our redemption. And so what the law failed to do, God has done by sending His own Son into this broken world to condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus. Fast forward to my favorite verse in all of the Bible, Romans 8.32. God did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all. How many of us would want to spare our son? To spare our son or our sons from death, from wickedness. God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Abraham was about to slay his own son, but God stopped him. Stop, the angel said. But there was no angel to Christ stop when Christ was nailed to the wooden cross. God did not spare him. God rather poured out his holy wrath upon him so that he would pay the debt of our sins so that God would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Anselm of Canterbury asked the question, Cur Deus Homo, that is, why God became man. Why did God become man? He asked this question in the late 11th century, and it's a good question. Why did God 
become man to save us because it was man that fell and man must repair what has taken place. And so Christ comes as the second Adam. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death uh, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake God made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. And so as we close our time, I want to encourage you, first of all, to remember who you are. Remember who you are. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or dominion of sin and death. God has sent His Son to meet God's righteous requirements and satisfy His justice for you. Those are the unshakable grounds of your salvation. You don't need to wake up in the morning wondering if you're still safely in the arms of God because Christ gave Himself for you and you are united to Him. As I've said many times before from this pulpit, your place in heaven is as secure as Christ's who is at the right hand of God. The righteous requirements have been fulfilled by Christ and in Christ, and so we are justified and have peace with God. Therefore, as we will learn over and over again in subsequent weeks, let us not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit who has given us new life and who empowers us to walk in growing and grateful obedience to the Word of God. So, dear Christian, be who you are. Do not walk in the ways of the world or in the trends of the culture. Go against the stream. Walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Be who you are. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the work of Christ, for his forgiveness, for his mercy, for his righteousness, which covers us and makes us right in your presence. Our Father, even now, as we sing and as we come to the table, would you nourish and strengthen us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stay.